nine seconds to represent the 85 people that died in the three minutes while we were watching that video. It is absolutely incredible to watch how God moves world events and what we're doing in church to collide into one message that says, my heart speaks for the nations. It's been almost really difficult to watch as Paris happened last week and we saw numerous attacks within that city and we came and we talked and we prayed about what had gone on there. And then to follow it this week with all of the infighting and the bickering really almost just as much among Christians as it is among the rest of the world, people who don't know and love Jesus about what we should do with refugees who have no hope. And that's just hard. And so that's just hard to recognize, isn't it? That we as people who have been given such an amazing gift just fight with each other over things that we really shouldn't be fighting about. And it's interesting to watch the media, both the news and the social media, and to see the responses of Christians across the world. The two things that seem to be what captivate us the most right now are homosexuality and terrorism. Terrorism of any form, both domestic and international. And the church as a whole does a terrible job entering into these conversations. But we cannot remain ignorant. We have to know what's going on and what God's heart is for the entire world. Most of us, if we've been in church for any amount of time, have been exposed to Acts 1-8. When Jesus comes, he's speaking. And this is after his resurrection. He comes to the disciples and he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. And then we have almost the exact same thing repeated in Matthew. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus comes to the disciples and once again says, Go therefore and make disciples of all. All the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey or observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But what most people don't realize is that God's heart for the nations was not established after the cross. God's heart for the nations was not established when he gave what we commonly know as the Great Commission. God's heart for the nations actually started in creation when he created Adam and Eve. He gave them the command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then after the destruction and the flood had come and Noah and his sons are standing there before God, God again says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And as time goes by, humanity becomes wicked again, and we see the Tower of Babel. And I think it is no mistake that God puts the Tower of Babel and Abraham side by side. Because what do we see? A God who is seeking his glory 
and establishing his kingdom and a man building a tower for their own personal security and personal glorification. And so God says, this cannot be. And so he scatters them, creates the absolutely beautiful tapestry of ethnicity, and man now fills the earth. And so God says, and comes, comes to Abraham and calls him out among all these different peoples. And he says, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and you shall be a blessing. I might have skipped something. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and those who curse you I will curse, and in you all families on the earth will be blessed. And so he begins this command that you are to be a blessing, and it just continues on this theme throughout the Old Testament. One of my favorites is in Exodus 19, and you might not even know that this is where this came from originally because Peter repeats it later. In Exodus 19, God says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, that you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. If the whole nation, men and women and children, are to be a kingdom of priests, who are they being a kingdom of priests to? The rest of the world. God is saying, I am creating you to go and share my love and my grace and my mercy with the peoples of the earth. Psalm 67 says, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. And your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among the nation. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. David's son Solomon says, And concerning the foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they were here of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all in which the foreigner calls you to, calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name, to fear you, as do your people, Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. The chosen nation calling the foreigner to know God just as they do to become chosen. And this theme is consistent across the Old Testament. And we begin to see, as Walter Kaiser says, this is never an election to privilege it is always an election to service. Always. And Isaiah begins to show us what 
this election to service and what this blessing is supposed to look like. God, speaking to Isaiah, says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also uphold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Israel is not enough. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And just before the Old Testament closes, God speaks to us through Malachi and says, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You see, much of the world stood and still remains in darkness. But the sun of righteousness has come. And he has brought healing and he is bringing his light to push back the darkness that we face and fight every day. Jesus came as a tiny, helpless human being and grew into a man like no other. And as he grew, he began to blatantly proclaim the kingdom of God, the reason why he came to earth. In Luke, Jesus says, Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Many of us are incredibly familiar with John 3.16 and can quote it. And God so loved the world, gave his only son. And we all believe in him and we're going to have eternal life and we won't perish. But we forget that right behind that verse comes John 3.17 that says... That he did not come to condemn the world. And so as we look at what Christ has done in our hearts and in our, in our lives, we realize that Christ did not give us the Holy Spirit to condemn the world. Instead, he gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to not stand in condemnation, but the ability to reach out and rescue I had some really good experiences of being lost as a child. Um, one of the first memories I have is of being lost. I was maybe eight or nine. I don't really remember. Ask my parents. I'm sure we have really different versions of this story. Um, but it was my parents and I and my grandmother, and we had gone on vacation. And for, for whatever reason, the car was broken down or something, so we'd taken the car to the shop, and we rented a car to go on vacation. So we come back, and we pick up the car, and you know how they often have TVs in the waiting rooms um, while you're waiting on them to work on your car? Well, I knew this, and so I'm like, hey, hey, I want to go watch TV. So I go in, I'm watching cartoons, I'm sitting there, and I'm watching these cartoons, and I'm thinking, man, I've been here a while, because like, I'd watch several different full clips of these cartoons, and I'm like, hmm look around. I don't see my mom. I don't see my dad. So I wander out into the parking lot and the car's not there. Neither car is there. 
And so I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. So I walk back in. Now, now, no one at this point has noticed that there's this eight-year-old child wandering around by themselves at the car dealership. So I go back in, and I'm still looking. And finally, I walk up to the counter, and this lady behind the counter looks over and is like, what you need? And I'm kind of like, so have you seen my mom and dad? And she's like, no. And I'm like, "Mm, I don't know where they are. And so we look for them for a few minutes, and finally she's like, "Um, so do you have somebody you can call? Because we couldn't find them. And this is before cell phones, and I was like, well, I can call my aunt. So we get on the phone, call my aunt. Mom and dad make it. But I had been wandering around lost, really pretty happy and unconcerned until that moment that I realized it, right? And nobody even noticed that I was lost. But I was content for a time. The second time I remember being lost was not an accident at all. I really promised mom that I thought you gave me permission. But you, you guys know Riverbend, right? Masses amounts of people everywhere. And they've always had a playground. And we would go and we would just, as a family, experience Riverbend. So we were hanging out and I was like, hey, in my mind, this is what I remember. Hey, can I go play on the playground? And what I heard was, yes. And I took off running. I mean, I was gone because I heard yes and I wanted to go play. And I ran away as fast as I could. And my mom started running after me because she couldn't see me because she didn't realize that I was going to run so far away so fast. And she finally caught up to me and she grabbed me and she was like, don't ever run away from me again. And then hugging me at the same time, like, oh my gosh, what have you done? I almost lost you and gripping me. And so finally, you know, there's that mix of what's going on, that lostness when you don't know it and that lostness when it's deliberate. But it doesn't matter what that lostness is. Jesus doesn't stand in condemnation either way. It's not condemnation when I didn't know it. And it wasn't condemnation when my mom finally caught up with me and was like, what were you doing? She didn't condemn me. She grabbed me and she took me up to her arms. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying is I didn't come to condemn. And that is part of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. As we enter into these conversations in these situations where there is a lot of fear and there is a lot of darkness and there is a lot of people who simply don't know Jesus, it's easy to stand in condemnation. But Jesus says, I did not come to condemn, I came to save. But you know, this mission that Jesus was on and the one that he has called us to, rescuing people from the darkness, didn't come without a cost for Jesus. The cost for him was the cross. And it doesn't come without a cost for us either. Jesus called the disciples to himself and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, but their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to be great, among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. 
just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And just like the Israelites, we stand realizing that we are not elected to privilege, just to privilege, because there is a great deal of joy and comfort and peace that comes with knowing Christ, but that's not all we are chosen for. Jesus said to them in Mark 6, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And even though those two passages that I read in Isaiah were really about the coming servant king, Jesus Christ, and what he would do when he came to earth to die on the cross, we have to look at what God's heart was when Jesus came. He said that you would give sight to the blind and release the prison prisoner from darkness. And I loved Tracy's prayer as she said, God, break our heart for what breaks yours. Because it may have been Jesus that Isaiah was prophesying about, but if that is what Jesus is concerned about, then we must join him in this race to fulfill his mission. First Peter 2.9 repeats Exodus 19 and says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As we choose to follow Jesus, if we are truly choosing to follow Jesus, it is not a choice to live a life of mediocrity. It is a choice to live a life full out, as hard as we can, running alongside of him to join him in the mission of rescuing people. And that end goal is one of the most beautiful pictures of what it looks like to worship God for an eternity. I love this passage in Revelation 7. It says, After all these things I look and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every tribe or every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in right robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation. To our God. And all the angels were standing around the throne and and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and honor, glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So you see... It didn't just start with the Great Commission. It didn't start in Acts 1-8. From creation 
to Christ and from Christ's cross to receiving his crown, God has always intended to build a kingdom of priests from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. We are to be a people who are blue hot worshipers. And you think that sounds a little funny, right? Like usually it's red hot. It might be white hot. Lots of people use white hot and red hot. But my dad, who was a fireman, I was messaging my mom, hey, ask dad these questions. And I was researching what it's like in a fire and which parts. I really like fire and looking at it and all the colors and I don't play with it. Um, But I really love how beautiful it is when you watch it. And there's so many different colors. And I was like, well, which part of the fire is the hottest, right? Just curious. And they say the part of the fire that is the hottest is the blue part because it is closest to the object which is on fire. It is the part that is consuming the most amount of oxygen and therefore it is the part that is emanating the most heat. And that's what I want to be. I want to be that one that is as close to the creator as I can be. And I want to be the one who is standing there absorbing every bit of the breath that he offers me in life. And as a result, I want to be that blue hot flame emanating heat and light into the rest of the world. Is that not an amazing picture of what God has called us to do? To be light, to push back the darkness? Man, that's amazing. And God really could do every bit of this without us. But for whatever reason, God has very carefully orchestrated the world to be his Holy Spirit working in and through us to partnership the gospel in word and deed. And many of us have heard that the false statement by St. Francis Assisi that says, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. And I'm sorry to say words are necessary. We cannot be that blue hot flame without speaking words of truth. It has to be proclaimed. It has to be heard. Go read Romans 10. It must be proclaimed. And that's a scary thing to hear. I know it is. I know that it is hard and scary to think about what it is to leave a comfortable, relatively secure, both financially and physically, lifestyle. I get it. I know that's hard. But when God calls us, he does not call us without risk. And the best thing about it is he didn't call us to do it alone. He has empowered us with the Holy Spirit. He has empowered us with the Holy Spirit and the power of conviction. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, it says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. In the Holy Spirit with full conviction. 
When I lived overseas, I had not been there but maybe a few months, and um, there was an outbreak of illness that required the people to um, be quarantined. So I ended up getting quarantined on campus by myself, barely speaking the language, and um, nothing to do, really. Um, And so I had found, fortunately enough, had gotten stuck on the side of campus with the sports fields. And so I went out one afternoon, and I was running, and I saw a group of girls playing basketball. And I went over, and I made friends with them and started talking to them. And one of the girls, well, they all lived on my side of town, but or my side of the, the campus. And so we were talking and began to share Jesus with her. And I gave her um, two books in her language. One was um, More Than a Carpenter, and another was called Song of a Wonder. And I gave them to her, and we spent about a week just talking about spiritual things and who Jesus was and what he meant. And I remember the day that we sat to talk to each other. And I just felt the Holy Spirit impressing on my heart. Do not give her an answer. I'm like, mm, that's hard. He says, nope, just ask questions. So I did. And I started asking a series of questions that only somebody that the Holy Spirit was speaking to could answer. And I could see the Holy Spirit revealing truth to her. I could see it as she was thinking. And as the truth came to her and God spoke his word powerfully, she was lighting up with the truth that the Holy Spirit brought. I didn't take it to her. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. And I was able to walk with her to know Jesus in one week because of the power of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings the power of compassion. This one's hard for me because sometimes I feel like I am not the most compassionate person in the world. But in Colossians, it says, As those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then we see Jesus himself going through the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, seeing the people he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And he gives us the power to proclaim. It's hard sometimes to speak truth, but the Holy Spirit gives us power and acts to... 4, 16, and 17, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with their tongues, with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days that God says that I will pour forth my Spirit on all my mankind, that your sons and your daughters shall prophecy, and your young men shall see vision, and your old men shall see dreams. First Peter one twelve. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things, which I which now have been announced to you, those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. And I think this one hits home with what we've been seeing happening across the world. Acts four thirty eight thirty one begins to talk about the power of boldness and courage. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. 
Luke 12, 11 through 12 and 22. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And he said to the disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on it. There's been a story going around in the wake of the movement of ISIS. And um, I think it's true, and I just want to read this pastor's account of something that happened back in August. At several steps on their path to death by beheading and crucifixion last month, 11 indigenous Christian workers near Aleppo, Syria, had the option to leave the area and live. The 12-year-old son of a ministry team leader also could have spared his life by denying Christ. The indigenous missionaries were not required to stay at their ministry base in a village near Aleppo, Syria. Rather, the ministry director who trained them had entreated them to leave. As the Islamic State, ISIS, and other rebel groups and Syrian government forces turned Aleppo into a war zone of carnage and destruction, ISIS took over several outlying villages. The Syrian ministry workers in those villages chose to stay in order to provide aid in the name of Christ to survivors. I asked them to leave, but I gave them the freedom to choose, said the ministry director, his voice tremulous as he recalled their horrific deaths. As their leader, I should have insisted they leave. They stayed because they believed they were called to share Christ with those caught in the crossfire. Every time we talked to them, the director said, they were always saying, we want to stay here. This is what God has called us to do. This is what we want to do. They just wanted to stay and share the gospel. Those who chose to stay could have scattered and hid in other areas as their surviving family members did. On a visit to the surviving relatives in hiding, the ministry director learned of the cruel executions. The relative said ISIS militants on August 7th captured the Christian workers in a village whose name is withheld for security reasons. On August 28th, the militants asked if they had renounced Islam for Christianity. When the Christians said that they had, the rebels asked if they wanted to return to Islam. And the Christians said they would never renounce Christ. The 41-year-old team leader, his young son, and two ministry members in their 20s were questioned at one village site where ISIS militants had summoned a crowd. The team leader presided over nine house churches and he had helped establish. His son was two months away from his 13th birthday. All were badly brutalized and then crucified, the ministry leader said. They were left on their crosses for two days. No one was allowed to remove them. The martyrs died beside signs the ISIS militants had put up identifying them as infidels. Eight other ministry team members, including two women, were taken to another site in the village that day and were asked the same questions before a crowd. The women, ages 29 and 33, younger than I am, 
tried to tell the ISIS militants that they were only sharing the peace and love of Christ, and they asked what they had done wrong to deserve the abuse. The Islamic extremists then publicly raped the women who continued to pray during the ordeal, leading the ISIS militants to beat them all the more furiously. As the two women and the six men knelt before they were beheaded, they were all praying. Villagers said some were praying in the name of Jesus. Others were saying the Lord's Prayer, and some of them had lifted their heads and commended their spirits to Jesus. One of the women looked up and seemed to be almost smiling as she said, Jesus. After they were beheaded, their bodies were hung on crosses. The ministry director said, his voice breaking. I cannot even begin to imagine. As I was talking about what I was going to share this week, a friend of mine said something that I thought was pretty profound. Love is always unsafe. Love is always unsafe. Sometimes it's unsafe emotionally because we're afraid we're going to get hurt. And sometimes it's unsafe because we willingly lay down our lives to proclaim the one true God who loves all nations and peoples and tongues. Richard Wormbrand, a few weeks ago, I shared the voice of the martyrs. He has a quote, says, Not all of us are called to die a martyr's death, but all of us are called to have the same spirit of self-sacrifice and love to the very end as these martyrs had. You see, Second Timothy, Paul knew when he wrote to Timothy, he said, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoners, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Now, I'm not saying that this call is one or the other. When God called, when Jesus said that you will go to all nations both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world, he was saying that this is a simultaneous task. It is not one or the other. It is both and. But there is a shocking disparity in the way that resources are allocated among the people of the world who already have access to the gospel and those who don't. As you saw in the video earlier, 90% of our resources are given to areas that already have the gospel, have churches established, have believers in them. But the 85 people that died in those three minutes had no access to the gospel, had no one that could tell them about the name of Jesus. 86% of the Hindu, Islamic, and Buddhist world knows not one person who can speak the name of Jesus to them. Not one person. But I don't just want you to hear and ignore the statistics. I want you to see the individuals. 
I want you to see the little girl from an unreached village nestled in the foothills of the Himalayas from a people group who had had no known believer until the year 2008, six months after I took this photo. Don't ignore the statistics of more than one million Tibetan Buddhists, of which so few are believers, they are considered zero percent evangelized. The woman living in her yurt and the child who is rushing to the roadside to meet the white-faced foreigners. Don't just hear the statistic that Nepal has a population of almost 29.5 million people, of which 29,142,000 have never heard the gospel. Pray for the holy man in Nepal who is deceived and is deceiving And for the women who pray to a fertility God that think that ringing a bell will provide them with a son. Pray for the people remaining in the city of Bhaktapur that was demolished by the earthquake earlier this year. Pray for the 11 million 537,000 of the 11,907,000 Uyghur people of China who remain unreached. Pray for all 384 unreached people groups of the 394 people groups in Pakistan, which contains a total population of over 190 million people. And pray for other nations like it. Most of us standing here today are old enough to remember 9-11. And where we were the day that we saw the Twin Towers fall. Think everybody in here is old enough to remember the tsunami in December of 2004. The recent attacks in Lebanon and Syria. The war that continues in Afghanistan and the refugees that are fleeing in massive amounts of numbers that has been unparalleled since World War II. And um, I really almost could not say it better myself, so I'm just going to read this um, by um, a man named Jerry Rankin, who has spent much of his life in the nation of Indonesia, which is the largest Muslim nation in the world. He says, The Medid has quoted many saying, Where was God in all of this? The implication was not that he was not all-powerful, or if so, was not the loving and caring God he should be to allow such a tragedy. But I think that is the wrong question. The question is not where was God, but where were we? Where were we 
when the thousands of people, quarter of a million, were swept instantly into hell? Have we allowed the resistant Buddhist faith of those in Thailand to create a lethargy and indifference about pushing the gospel to the edge there? Have we observed the rampant terrorist activity and Tamil Sinhala warfare in Sri Lanka and said it's too dangerous? It's not worth the effort. We'll wait for things to settle down. Because foreigners and Christians have not, have not been allowed in Aceh, Indonesia, have we just thrown up our head and said there's nothing we can do? Yes, I'm angry. I'm angry that it's taking us this long to get the, the gospel to all peoples. And I'm disappointed that we continue to give so much attention to maintaining and nurturing, nurturing established work where the gospel is readily accessible. We prefer the gratifying harvest fields where we can bolster our egos with impressive statistics while millions of Akanese, Sri Lankans, Maldivians, and Thais are swept into hell untouched by the gospel. I'm exasperated that we continue to spend 97% of our resources in concentrating on our Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria rather than moving to reach out to the ends of the earth. The world will not quickly forget the tragedy, tragedy of more than a quarter of a million people being killed by a tsunami on December 26, 2004, although I suspect he's wrong. And people living in comfort and security have very easily forgotten that quarter of a million. But it is easy to ignore the fact that nearly that many people, quarter of a million people, die every week, week after week in South Asia alone. That many people die from AIDS every month in sub-Saharan Africa with most without any chance of knowing Jesus. Yes, I know. I will soon get over my anger and adjust to reality. I hope not. We will move on doing what we can, but I have prayed, God, don't ever let me be satisfied with business as usual. Don't ever let me lose a sense of urgency for sharing the gospel with every nation, every people group, and every person. You see, sometimes we're that little child lost, not knowing it. Sometimes we're that little child who is blatantly disobedient and running as hard from God as we possibly can. But may we never be the lady sitting behind the counter, oblivious to the lostness that is in front of us. We cannot miss this. God does not call us to sit in our comfort and security. He calls us to join, this, join him on this mission. And you may be saying, but I just am not equipped to go. I don't know what to do. Or maybe I'm interested, but I'm not sure how to be involved. There are so many ways that you can be involved. The number one way that you can be involved is to pray. Oh my goodness, it is such an easy, but yet the most powerful tool we have to come before the throne of God. And there are plenty of resources to help you with that. I brought today Operation World, which tells you about all the numbers of people groups in the world and who they are and specific prayer requests. For those of us who are attached to technology at our hips, there is a wonderful app called JP Unreached. It will even send you a daily unreached people group that you can be praying for 
What I would encourage you to do is go on there, find your birthday, find your kids' birthdays, find your spouse's birthdays, and pray for those people from the group who shares your birthday. You can give. There are missions agencies across the nation. If you want to know how to partner with them, let me know. We have one right here that Journey has consistently partnered with in the past called 1040 Connections. Didn't know it, but they're actually here this morning. So if you're interested and want to know more about how to partner with individuals for the gospel, I can point you to them. And we as a church have to grasp God's heart. Because if we are truly following him, we cannot follow slowly or mediocrely. We have to follow passionately. Jesus, I cannot fathom or understand what it is like to live in darkness because you have been so gracious to offer your light to me. But I ask that you would ignite a blue hot flame into each and every one of us. That we would emanate a heat and shine a light that brings your kingdom to the nations. Amen.